In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. So I invite you as we enter into our prayer, our declaration and decree to let that artistry that we just shared resonate in your heart and activate gratitude. Gratitude is such a powerful quality of the infinite, of the divine, that shifts and changes us and opens us. So standing in this, this pristine experience of gratitude for life, for ears to see and or ears to hear and eyes to see, I just give thanks for this day. And I give thanks for the, the beautiful mystical teaching that we share, to bring into our lives, to activate. Because what I know is there is a vibration of the Most High that is always available, that is always with us, that we are always walking with, and in, in a, a immediate availability. But what is required is our invitation. And so I know that each time I invite and open myself to that awareness, and each time you invite and open yourself to that awareness, Something new and bright and beautiful has an opportunity to be our, part of our experience. So I give thanks this day, knowing everything is in divine right order. I bless and give thanks for all of the resources that allow us the time, the space, the energy, the awareness, and the evolution of human consciousness to be together and to share these ideas. I'm grateful to know that not only the words and the sounds, but the consciousness upon the words are rich. I'm grateful to know that it is the spaces in between the words many times where the wisdom has an opportunity to become available and clear in our own awareness. And so what I know is that each moment is sacred because we declare it so. We come together in agreement of possibility, of love, of beauty, of joy, of celebration. And knowing that as we continue to nurture that, amazing things continue to unfold. And for this I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. Yeah, lovers in a dangerous time. It's amazing that three guys can get up together and make such beautiful music, isn't it? It is, it is. It's a wonderful thing to behold, to watch that artistry. So we're finishing up, well, we're not really, because we're going to use Dr. Michael's book over the next several months along with a few others, but for the, for the, the focus of this month, we've been using uh, Spiritual Liberation by Reverend Dr. Michael Beckwith, and uh, it's such a rich, beautiful, beautiful book. So Architects of the Beloved Community is a chapter that just jumped out at me as I was doing my reading and preparing for this. And there's a beautiful image. I, I, I love this image for a variety of reasons. Number one, it reminds me of the rosette that is in the cathedral at Notre Dame in France where the Chartres Labyrinth uh, rest. 
and that was built in the 12th century, and the, the, the sacred geometry that was involved with this is gone. They don't know where it is. It's probably in the archives in the Vatican. But sacred geometry being that there was a guidance and an awareness and a grace upon what was being designed so that when you walk into it, what they say about a labyrinth is when you walk into it is a blueprint for the Holy Spirit. So that there's an immediacy and there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's an order to it that allows the mind and the spirit and the soul to settle in. And so this, this image of this, the um, uh, leaded glass reminds me of that. It also reminds me of there, there's a perfect order in the universe. And we see that in the golden mean. If you look at a, um, a beehive and you look at the honeycombs, there's a perfect order to that. It's called the golden mean. And so when we can duplicate the order in that, in, in our interior and in our awareness, there's a resonance that is much brighter and beautiful. And I think that is why one of the spiritual practices of walking the labyrinth can be so rich for us. And we, that is done in community. That is done together. So Dr. Michael Beckwith, fulfilling your soul's potential. I think you've seen that slide a few times over the last several weeks. At the beginning of each chapter in his book, he begins with a, a verse from one of the songs that either he or his wife, Ricky Byers Beckwith, uh, have written um, and or independently of one another, but they collaborate a great deal on this beautiful music, and she's an incredible artist. The beginning of this chapter, Architects of the Beloved Community, he begins it with this passage, I live to be the message that I long to see. I long to be the way that I am looking for, and I need to shine the light that I long to see. I live to be the message that I long to see, I long to be the way that I am looking for, and I need to shine the light that I long to see as well. In other words, it is that inner transformation that is, it is within all of us. And to awaken it within us, and it changes the perspective that we, we move on this planet from. So I wanted to touch on a few of the, the uh, things that I think are very rich this, this week with you. One is the idea of beloved community. What does that look like? What does that represent? Number two is agape love or, or concretized. And agape love, of course, is, a, is the, the richest form of love there is. In fact, Michael, uh, Reverend Dr. Michael's uh, center in Los Angeles is called agape. And it was inspired by some of the work by Martin Luther King. Um, love is not an emotion. The idea of becoming fearless, ordinary to extraordinary, and begin right where you are that it doesn't, uh, and I'll, I'll expand on those things in a moment here. But beloved community, in the, in the Latin, what community represents is the, the C-O-M, com, means together. And the munis uh, involves the performance of services. So it's coming together in the performance of services. And so as a, as a spiritual community, there's, um, it is a call to action, but it's also not just in spiritual community, it is in the world. And I want to talk about that a bit today, about some of the things that are unfolding, why I think this work and why we're called to this and why this is so, so I think, important and, and why the world is longing for what we represent in our own unique way. We're not, the, we're not the only answer, but I think that we can contribute to being part of the solution. I want to share with you, uh, this next slide is a picture of Marion Woodman. and Marion is a renowned author. She is a uh, Jungian analyst. 
Um, amazing woman. There's a movie that I mentioned last week talked about her healing with the Black Madonna and the experience she had with that. But just a very, very wise woman. And I want to share with you a, um, um, a short YouTube video. It's two and a half minutes. It's called uh, the, the Addicted World. And I think it sets up really nicely some of the ideas I want to uh, share with you today. And I think we are acting like addicts. We have all this wonderful life, but we cannot believe we can lose it. Mm. That, that, that is too horrible a thought. So the fear is expressed in adding more and more stuff, stealing more and more from the earth, and acting more and more irresponsible is the word, just irresponsible and even angry. See, we're living in a civilization that doesn't understand metaphor. So they, they tend to concretize everything and not even know that that's what's going on, except that God doesn't matter anymore. Ritual doesn't matter. But the God that they didn't find in the church or in the woods or wherever, they're finding in the bottle. And the union that they don't find in making love, they find through another kind of sexuality. Whatever, whatever how that, however that goes. But, it, but the union that they yearn for, you know, that total coming together, they can't find. Because they concretize concept and it it kills them and the person who wants abundance who wants to revel in abundance can't think of it in terms of the a rapture before nature a rapture for the sea or a gazelle thinks of it in terms of stuff yes. stuffs his or her everything life is, with stuff everything is concretized Everything is materialized in a gross way, and that requires the strip mining of nature, the destruction of the environment. That's a short segment from the movie that I spoke about last week called Dancing in the Flames by Marion Woodman, and if you Google it on um, YouTube, you'll find it. And that is also Andrew Harvey. He's a, uh, he's a mystic, he's an educator, a uh, brilliant man, and he has devoted his life. At the age of 25, he was teaching at Oxford, and he got disillusioned with the academic life, and he went off, and he, went, he was actually born in India, and he tells a story about how he went back to India, and how in India, he f discovered Sri Aurobindo, and Aurobindo was a great, great inspiration for Dr. Ernest Holmes, who founded Religious Science. He, he had a book, I have uh, his book, The Life Divine, it's a, quite a large volume. Um, and, but Dr. Holmes had that in his nightstand. He would read Sri Aurobindo before he went to sleep at night. And what Aurobindo talked about was God the mother, the great force. That in the Hindu tradition, the mother, the feminine energy, is, is, is honored everywhere. Where we've got this tendency to make God a man in our, in our culture in the West. But Andrew also uh, inspired, and I told Martin at the first service, I thought, what a wonderful song to begin with, Lovers in a Dangerous Time. 
Because some of the realities of what we live in right now, I just want to point to, um, in this, this uh, uh, information, Andrew Harvey is talking about the seven-headed um, beast. And that comes from the Gospel of John. You know, John, it's like um, uh, Reverend Tammy said that here's one of, uh, a, a center favorite, and, and Martin wanted to be the center favorite. <laughs> But it's, and I thought, what a great way to say this, because it's really what happened with the Gospel of John. You know when the guys got together in the fourth century? Maybe some of you were there and remember back in a past life. <laughs> but it was, Jesus is a son of God. And then all of a sudden they said, no, 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 let's make him the son of God. And everything changed. And all of a sudden, there was more separation, the language of separation, when in fact we are all a son and daughter of this this. God of the mother and God of the father, this divine presence. But it's interesting because the consciousness wasn't that we needed to concretize it. We needed it to have solid. It's got to look like a certain way. So to concretize is to give a definite form. And part of what, one of the things I love about this, I mean, you know, it, it, when we live in, in both camps, the love and the law, well, the love is the mystery and it's a metaphor. So metaphor being that it symbolizes something. And Jungian analysts, I mean, God bless Marion Woodman. In her journey, this, the movie is incredible. I've watched it twice. But it's, it's uh, amazing as she talks about how important metaphor and understanding the symbolism of dreams and what we're drawn to and called to. And it is the divine. But we, we live in a world that has become so obsessed with form. We fall asleep, the, the Buddhists say we fall asleep in the Maya, as do the Toltecs. The Toltecs use the same term. Well, but so here's some of the, here's the seven-headed beast that Andrew Harvey talks about. Number one is the, a population explosion. By 2050, they estimate that we will have nine billion people on the planet. And what we know is about the planet can comfortably sustain about six billion. Even today, we have 2,000 million people living on a dollar a day or less. The next head of the beast, as uh, Andrew Harvey says, is the environmental, the environmental holocaust. Climate change. I mean, look at this February we've had. I mean, I, I mean it's been great for us. You know, I, I usually I'm, I've shoveled the, the walk at least 50 times. But it's interesting to watch what's happening with climate. One of the things that's happening in the Amazon rainforest with the continued progression of, of deforestation is that we are losing, uh, as he would say, the lungs of the world. And by 2050, the way the, the, the things are happening there, it should be gone. And then what do we breathe? Interesting situation. And there's no serious political movement or, or organizational movement to, to shift and change that. He also talks about fundamentalism, the third head. Fundamentalism. <clears throat> We're here to be one. We're here to be one. We're here to be together. And it's such a frightening idea for so many people. There's one life one presence, God's life, and you and I are all brothers and sisters in that, despite where we've, we were grown up or domesticated or whatever it is. God is all there is. But there's a retreat of all the major religions with so much fear that's going on, back into the, the good old days or what we stand for, the fundamentalism, and the ten, it's, it, it's negative, the, it's hysterical, it divides it mutilates, it separates. And we see that. It's alive on the planet. You, know, you watch it in the, the, the hysteria that's going on right now in the United States with this, uh, the, uh, the, the elections that are coming up. And you see how polarized people are. Here's two political parties, and one political party said, well, we're not going to let you nominate a Supreme Court justice because we don't like you. 
when in fact they're there to be of service to the country and to trust, but there's no trust. And it's gotta be the way we want it. I heard the other day that if, it, if, it, if an, um, a same party gets elected, they're just gonna wait until their party takes control. And it's just fascinating how people can be so concretized and entrenched. But it's, it's part of the symptoms of the need to control because if we control it, we, we won't be so scared. When in fact, it's, it's all symptoms of, of fear. Weapons of mass destruction. There are more weapons right now we can, I don't know how many times we can destroy the world. And Andrew Harvey says, can you imagine if Hitler had availability to some of these n- nuclear warheads that we have now? And of the, all the chemicals and the things that, 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 you know, the world would look completely different. Unfortunately, he didn't. But we've, we've put so many resources into to protecting ourselves and looking at destroying our, uh, one another that it's, it's ridiculous. Obsession with technology. That we are inundated with technology. And it's, uh, it's so important. You know, the immediacy of information and, and, and part of adding to that, that sort of alertness that we all sort of live with. And, and how that has become a way of life for so many. And then, of course, the, the things that go on with technology. You know, we know everything and we can, and the bullying that will go on and the things. And technology is a wonderful thing to look up things and, and, and have access to it. But sometimes it becomes the consciousness upon it is obsessive and it can be, um, it can be destructive. It talks about mass media. We have avalanches of trash, of pro- pornography, of violence that we're exposed to through popular culture, through, through movies, through television, through media being controlled by certain people that have a lot of resources that would like to influence what we, we consume as uh, consumers, and then also corporations, the corporate because they want to sell us product, because we need the product. To feel good about ourselves, we need this. So it's very interesting to, to look at that. I was on, the, web, I was on uh, the website this morning, and I was just checking the news, and it was a, a heartbreaking story, and then it was a commercial within a half inch of one another. And I thought, look at this, how desensitizing that is. To, to see one of those stories and read it in a newspaper 20 years ago, I would have, you know, I would have had a chance to capture some, but now it's like, oh, I don't want to read about that disaster, but I'll go here where there, you know, some, some lighthearted article or some comparison that's going on. But it's fascinating the amount of information that we had made available to us. And the last head, the seventh one, is this, is this hysteria business. That is about... Life can get so busy for us, you know, it makes it almost impossible for us to slow down and to be in relationship with metaphor and mystery because we want to concretize everything. We want to have it all scheduled. As Dr. Michael Beckwith said last, uh, the, the last few weeks, I've been sharing with you that evolved people value downtime to just play in what's, what's happening, to play in our spirit, that not every moment has to be filled. Um, uh, my wife, Laura, just finished reading um, Walter Isaacson's uh, Einstein, and she's been sharing bits and pieces with me, and at one point in time, I will read it myself. But Einstein was amazing. People paid him to just hang out and think. Can you imagine? You know, I mean, today, like, we've got to get rid of that Einstein. He ain't doing anything. He's just sitting there all the time. I mean, but it's interesting how we feel like it's always got to have an end product. And so those are those seven, that's that seven-headed beast, as Andrew Harvey used the idea of the Gospel of John. And I, I think so much of that is real. That's the world that we live in for many people. That's the next, uh, you know, it's, it's all of these things that we have created. Marion Woodhead would say that, that all of these things, that life is a continuum of, of death and rebirth. 
It doesn't mean we have to die. It just simply means it's the old ideas and ways of being have to die. And, we either get, and so when we're aware of the, some of the conditions that we're, uh, we're faced with, we have the opportunity to decide, yeah, I'm going to run with that or I'm not going to run with that. But we get to choose. You know, where we get to decide what we consume, what we put into our, our awareness and our consciousness. So Dr. Michael talks about that love, love is the ultimate conqueror. He says, now is the time to put an end to world hunger, to wars, inadequate health care, lack of education, global warming. Architects of the beloved community are spiritual revolutionaries who realize that the solution to global, global challenges is a spiritual one. That conquest through wars is at best temporary. Only conquest by love is permanent. That's quite a radical idea, isn't it? To, to even consider that? But only conquest by love. As possible. Love is not an emotion, a romantic notion. It is a living, organically powerful energy that holds together the fabric of the created world. Love is what we are. The world is looking for love masters, and each one of us has the potential to be a love master. That's our opportunity to be a master of love and that shift and change within us. So, how do we nurture that? How do we create that? Well, it's agreeing to it, agreeing to evolve. It's agreeing to look at the, the world as it is and say, you know what, I don't stand for this. These are the things I stand for. These are the things I nurture. And it requires person by person, thought by thought, experience by experience, and not being caught in it, not, being, not going back to sleep into the maya of the overwhelm of life. And Dr. Holm, or, um, uh, Dr. Michael says that if love weren't so powerful, we would have destroyed ourselves long ago. I mean, there's a, it is who and what we are. And the earth is alive. And as Marian Woodman said, it's this, this tendency for more and more and more. Gabor Mate calls it the hungry ghost, feeding the hungry ghost, more and more and more. It's like I say to people, how many times do you need to come to the center and hear a talk before you really start to use this stuff in your life? And they usually look at me and say, just one more. Just one more time. If I just get one more, I'm ready. But that's that hungry ghost. A little bit more information to knock around in my head. So love is a living, organically powerful energy that holds together the fabric of the created world. Love is what we are. The world is looking for love masters. And each of us is that potential love master. So I want to share a, a, a couple of stories that I think tie in so beautifully with this idea of possibility and change. The next slide is a picture of uh, actor Ethan Hawke and a guy by the name of Seymour Bernstein. And Seymour, if you go on YouTube, uh, there's a movie on there about Seymour. And the name of it is Seymour. And so it's his story and what's, who Seymour is. He's 88 years young right now. Amazing, amazing man. Um, at six years old, sat down at the piano and could play the piano. What's that all about? Hmm but an amazing, amazing virtuoso on the piano. And he had this incredible career. And he had a woman that was his benefactor that was obviously in love with him, moved him into this beautiful home up, in, um, uh, up above New York City. Um, I can't think of the name right now. But uh, she had this beautiful mansion, and Seymour lived there with her and played the piano, and she would just shower him with gifts, and it made him very uncomfortable. 
But as a young man, so he, he got himself out of that situation because he didn't want to be in that type of relationship. He was in, in relationship with the divine. But she, um, and I can't remember her name right now and I didn't record it, but she was a spiritualist. And spiritism, the John of God experience, when you go down to the tradition that supports that environment of unconditional love, they're, they're called spiritist. So they come out of the same lineage. And so she would get up in the morning and say, today I'm gonna work with Jesus Christ. Or today I'm gonna work with the Buddha. And she would welcome that and work with that energy and that guidance. And so, see, at the quantum level, the Christ is available to all of us. The Buddha is available to all of us. It is not concretized. It is an energetic, it is a consciousness. And when we open the circuit, it becomes available. And we can nurture that. It's like learning a language. So anyway, she, but, but she influenced him tremendously spiritually. And in music for him, throughout the movie, talks about the sacredness and the, the mystery of the music and what it uh, cracks open in individuals. And he was a renowned concert performer. And the reviews were spectacular, his artistry. And at the age of 50, he said, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be performing anymore. I'm done with it. And so he put, put that all down, and he became a music teacher, and he works with students. And he's been, he's been published, he's written a lot of uh, wonderful music, but for the last 38 years, he's just been working with these amazing students and nurturing them. But at one point in his life, he talked about his father, because his father was not fond of what he was doing. His father said, I have three daughters and one piano player. And so he was not uh, in favor of him playing the piano. And so the interviewer said, uh, well, how did you deal with that? And he said, I learned to put myself in a, in a bubble where he could not penetrate that bubble. So what he did is he realized that the energetic of his dad was not serving what was, his heart was being called to express. And it's just an amu amazing story of spirituality and music and how he created a life that is precious and wonderful for him. He lives in a one-bedroom studio apartment in New York City, has done that for years. And they show him he's folding up his uh, sleeper so uh, sofa in the morning because that's enough for him. But he just wanted to teach. He wanted to be in the music and play with it and, and, and nurture other people in their artistry. But it's a fascinating, beautiful movie. And Ethan Hawke met him at a party one night and said, I'm so inspired by the things that you've said to me about life and purpose and meaning and value. And so to walk away from a career that for many of us would look like, oh my, how extraordinary to say, you know what? I'm called to this. But it's a beautiful story. One of the things that he inspired in me was this, this uh, next slide called the Karpman Syndrome. It's called the Drama Triangle. And I see it over and over and over again. And it's called the... The drama triangle, because it has three, three uh, characters in it. There's the per persecutor, the rescuer, and the victim. And what happens when you're in the Karpman syndrome, I've seen it many times, continue to see it. When you're in the, the Karpman syndrome, you take on all three roles. One of the key things about what I believe we stand for as a, as a movement is that when we hold people as victim then we can slip right into, well, I'm gonna rescue you. Or, or we may be the persecutor, but we cycle through these. It's a vicious cycle of characters that we drop into. And, when you, and so the, the nice thing about knowing this is you can stop yourself and go, wait a minute, I'm not gonna see that person as a victim. I'm gonna see that person as whole and complete and, a, and an individualized expression of the infinite that is having this experience over and over again until they decide to wake up. And, and to celebrate that and to let people have their own experience. 
It's, it's fascinating to watch, you know, it's a, it's a I, I was sharing with a, a minister when I was down south, and he was telling me about his church. I said, how's church going? And, and then I told Laura, you know, I really didn't want the answer to that, so I don't know why I asked it, but then I was stuck with asking the question. And then I spent the next 15 minutes hearing how the air conditioner broke down in this church. And before you know it, he and I are sitting there trying to figure the problem out. And then we were going right into the Cartman syndrome, you know, of why it couldn't happen. And let's argue for the limitation. I thought, oh, golly, I remember when I used to do this all the time. So I just had to go back to my room and do my own forgiveness work for myself and, then, and to know a bigger idea. That something within this man and within this community has everything they need to succeed with this. But to not see them as broken or less than or being or broke. But, it, but, but it's a very interesting scenario. And if you find yourself slipping into it or you find yourself around people that slip into it, you get to decide and I get to decide, do I want to play like this? This is so easy to do. So this idea of... You know, what love looks like, what love is. The next idea about becoming fearless. There's a guy that I think you all recognize. It's not Ben Kingsley, it's actually Gandhi. (laughs) You must be the change you wish to see in the world. So Gandhi, as a young attorney, was in South Africa. And he's riding on a a, uh, train. And the powers that be came up and said, who are you, scrawny little brown man? And they took him and they threw him with all his books off. He's a, he was a, um, an attorney at the time, and he was in first class. But because he didn't look like he belonged, they threw him off the train. And he said that was a pivotal moment for him, where he realized that all the things he thought he was, his status, attorney, uh, educated, uh, all of these sort of things meant nothing. And he said, in that moment, I became, ze- I became zero, and he realized that what happened was it ignited in him an awareness about what the treatment he received. And he saw it all around himself. And he realized it was time to become a spiritual revolutionary and stand for a bigger idea upon the planet. And he led that nonviolent movement to eradicate the, the British Empire from India. And it took time to shift that culture. It took time to shift the, the, the consciousness. But he did it. And an amazing example of what's possible when someone has an awakening and is devoted to that. Buckminster Fuller, um, you know, wonderful writer and, and uh, mystic and leader. One of the pivotal points in his life is he became so desperate and, and depressed, he walked out into the world one day and decided he'd had enough. He'd lost his son and he was very depressed and he was going to end his life. And what died that day was the old ideas And then what was awakened in him, he realized, you know, my life is over as I know it. But what I can be, I can be of service to humanity. And so it was that shifting. Something died. He didn't have to kill himself. Because what was creating the pain in his life, he could no longer sustain. And he realized, I have to give this up. I can't be so entrenched in what it's got to look like. I mean, children do that for us. Anybody here ever raise children? Children force you to, to reassess what success looks like. Because you may have an idea in your head, and, and they got a different idea. And guess what? They're going to live their idea. But the point is, it's such great learning, because you, there's a point you just go, oh, i got to surrender to this. Well, it be interesting to see how this comes out. But, but it's alive in all of our lives. And have to being proficient and realizing, you know what, I'm uncomfortably being in the mystery of not knowing. I'm going to live in not knowing right now. Because I know when the not knowing is that field of possibility. 
But I also know if I'm, I'm continuing to align myself with that greater yet to be, with that vibrancy, with that radiance, as Andrew Harvey said, the radiance of nature. We look for it to be fulfilled. We, we need more and more, and it's like it's right here. What a beautiful practice to get up and look out the window. I was doing this this morning. I was looking out our window at nature, and I was like, there it is. There's God's presence. And nothing out there happened. It was all happening within me. And I thought, this is just beautiful. There's a fulfillment that's alive here. And how often do I practice that? And how often do we teach our children to practice that? Because we, we, get, we go to sleep in the concretized nature of life. And it's okay to do that. It's just, it's time to wake up. So the next slide is uh, near and dear to my heart. When I was in Salt Lake City, I went down there to do a, a short presentation on uh, the F Financial Freedom Academy that the organization is putting together. I'm part of the committee, and they asked me to come down and speak to it. And it's a wonderful body of information about spiritual communities having resources. Uh, Laura and I went down a year ago to Houston, and we did a conference with a group of Southern Methodists in uh, there and there were probably I don't know 120 ministers and church leaders there and it was training about how to build um, uh, sustainability in your community financially because when you have resources you can do more and so there was a man there that we had met in Houston his name is Sanford Kuhn and Sanford is a wonderful man and he was standing there with his it's called Horizons and it's through the work of uh, Cliff Christopher and Cliff has, has impacted communities all over the world. It's amazing. The, the Methodist, Southern Methodists had an endowment when we met these people of $600 million over a period of time. Because these people, you know, they, they, they know what they stand for. They support it. And so we, do we have an endowment? I think we, we've got an endowment started with our organization. But to, to how do we do this? How do we provide sustainability? I think the world longs for what we have to offer. The opportunity to step in and go, you know what? You don't have to kill one another. To, there is a, a, there's a whole different opportunity here of perspective that we're not stuck with dogma. We're not stuck with we have the right way. Let's just come together in collaboration and partnership. So anyway, I'm there and I'm talking to Sanford and I'm getting, uh, I said, and, and I met him before, so we had a nice little visit at one of the functions. And I said, what are you working on right now? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm working with a ch uh, um, Christian school, a Methodist school, elementary school, on the border, El Paso, Texas, right on the border. And I said, really? What do you, what's happening there? He says, well, we're raising money because there's 450 kids in the school, and 350 of them come over the Mexican-American border every day to go to school. So all these little Hispanic kids in their uniforms come over the border to get educated. And he said, they look out for one another, they care for one another, they know one another. And he said, there are some days where the, the powers that be, the government officials don't let them over the border. So these kids never know if they're gonna get to school or not. But I just thought, this is so inspiring. At a time when there are people that, that have the microphone that are talking about building a wall, as if a wall is gonna fix things, Billions and billions of dollars to build a wall, which most of them will tunnel under anyway, the ones that are nefarious. But the point is, is that where are we putting our resources? Let's build some more nuclear weapons to feel safe. Let's build as many walls as we can to feel safe. And this is what happens when we get concretized. But we realize maybe it's more helpful if we educate our children whether they were born in our country or not, so that they have an opportunity to, to go home and educate their moms and, and dads, perhaps. I worked with a guy in Los Angeles. He worked with me for years. Could barely read and write, but he had four children, and he made sure every one of them, he was making 10 bucks an hour working for me. Every one of those kids went to, went to school. 
Uh, two of them went into law enforcement. Another one was, they, they all went into the military, which was, gave them an opportunity to get some, some resources and some discipline in their lives and structure in their life. But every one of them, this guy could barely speak English. And he could barely read. But he made sure those kids got educated. So I said to Stanford, uh, Stanford, I said, can you send me information because I'm part of a tithing community and I think we would like to be part of supporting that, whatever that might look like. And we'll talk about that here. But also I called the powers that be within our organization because I know one of the members of the Centers for Spiritual Living Tithing Committee for the organization. And I said, I called her and I said, this is something I think is really worthwhile. That in, the, in a time when people are looking to build walls, let us, let us build these bridges of love and opportunity and put resources towards that because that's what we stand for. And she said, absolutely. So there's a picture of the, some of the kids in their uniforms going to school. That's just a lovely, lovely thing. But this is what masters of love, I think, stand for. And having the, 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 the discernment and the deep care about life and the possibility of future generations and of collaboration, extraordinary, ordinary to extraordinary. Michael says, we are often unaware when, when and how low-level anxiety overtakes our minds. This is insidious. Low-level anxiety takes over our minds. We accept it as normal to be tense, upset, reactionary, fearful, doubt-filled, and worried. That's not our natural state of being. Our natural state of being is freedom and joy and possibility and opportunity to be like Gandhi, fearless. Bring it on, oh really? Well, thanks for sharing. Wow, you know, we hate you. Well, thanks for sharing. I can't join you in that. That's not what I stand for. But we, we are, are we, we are lovers in a dangerous time. We are either part of the solution or we're part of the problem. Michael says what is required to begin shifting these external facts is maintaining a focus on individual inner change, the transformation within ourselves. That is ours to do. And in doing that, the doors will open, the thresholds will appear. But without that, we're just contributing to the same chaos that we're, we're troubled by. Through our individual inner work, we discover that we have ample gifts to contribute and to establish an enlightened society to establish and stand for an enlightened society. We then become motivated to deliver these gifts in a mindset of love, not out of fear that the world needs saving. See, so many people, here's, here's a, the grand scale of the Cartman syndrome. The world needs saving. Not out of a, but to deliver these gifts in a mindset of love, not out of a fear that the world needs saving. We are not here to save the world but to serve as emerging paradigms of love, connectedness, and generosity of heart. And we can't concretize that. We have to, you know, this whole agape love is to love God as God loves us. And it is that mother force, it is a father force, it is love beauty to, but to, but to be filled with that radiance of love. And that's something we can do. And do not let the things that are going, showing up out there deter us from that and take us away from that. Paramahansa Yogananda, if you haven't ever read the autobiography of a yogi, you've got to read it. It's a wonderful book. It opens up to possibilities and things. That, amazing, amazing teacher. He said this, ultimate peace will come by mutual agreement. All nations of the earth will have continued peace conferences and will scrap their weapons and instead help to destroy the earth's slums. 
So we have all this darkness to work with because what it does, it's an irritant for us to wake up. But wouldn't it be lovely if we just decide we're going to wake up and not need to be irritated and not need to be uh, inspired through fear and lack and limitation and to realize it would be okay if we share resources and we help children get educated, that, there's, you know, that our coming generations, I mean, our, our oceans are, are full of trash. We have so many people now taking pharmaceutical medicine to, to manage their anxiety that goes right into the water. It doesn't dissipate. I mean, eventually, we won't even have to go to the doctor. We just have to go to the tap. I, when, in fact, when, when it, it's not necessary. And yet, with the, the world that we can fall asleep in, it, it feels necessary. It feels overwhelming. And to slow down, evolve people, value downtime. So begin right where you and I are. Right where we are, we can begin. We don't have to have a, a, a huge awakening. We don't have to have a purple fist come out of the sky and, and, and sprinkle us with fairy dust. We just start right where we are. To ask ourselves this question, will this, this thought, this activity, this emotion, bring me greater freedom? And to have the discernment and the awareness to say it won't. So I'm not, I'm not going to entertain that right now. I'm going to do what that minister said a couple weeks ago. I'm going to shut my eyes. I'm going to relax my jaw. And I'm going to blank out the screen of my mind and shut it down. So there. You're going to have to go land somewhere else so someone else can carry the worry, the concern, the fear, the competition, the dread. The divinity of who and what we are. The way we, we nurture that is to simply invite it and invite it over and over again. To sit down quietly. As Paramahansa said in his beautiful meditation, reveal thyself. Reveal thyself. Simple, beautiful. Am I living my destiny or am I escaping it? As as Margaret Woodman would say. We are either here to fulfill our destiny or to escape it. Today, I choose to celebrate life. What evolved people do is they celebrate life. Life is not a problem to be solved. So let's find the celebration. In this moment, I partner with the divinity that is walking with me. Dr. Michael talks about that in this chapter. Divinity is always with us. It just needs to be recognized and welcomed. And I am a revolution in consciousness. To to be available to that revolution of consciousness. At the end of each chapter, there's an affirmation. And then we'll get Martin out here. There's there's an affirmation at the end of every one of uh, Michael's chapters in in the book. And I'll leave you with this today. I know that my true essence is love. Such a potency of love am I that were I to realize its fullness, I would be on my knees before my inner self. Today I embrace all my brothers and sisters in this love. I wrap myself and every man, woman, and child in this love. I have no enemies, imagined or real. I practice world citizenry and radiate out a blessing of love upon the planet. Blessings and thank you. And so it is.